Good morning, Journey Church. Uh, good, good to see everybody. Man, this is an awesome day. Is this like what we live for in the winter, looking forward to summer like a day like today? We're so, uh, so glad you've joined us. If you're in person, uh, it's great to see you. If you're uh, with us online, it's great to have you uh, with us. You know, I was with someone this week uh, called to the hospital, uh, someone near the end of, of their uh, life here on the earth, and she just shared uh, that she'd been watching us online. She couldn't get out. And, uh, but uh, that kind of made a connection. I was able to share with her and pray. So uh, whatever your circumstances may be in life, uh, we're glad that you've joined us today for our time of worship together. So we are beginning a new series today called Four. And uh, not uh, F-O-U-R, the number, but just F-O-R, very simple. And we're going to be talking today that we are for God. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a relationship that you were committed to, but the other person seemed not to be nearly as committed as you? You know, maybe as a parent, sometimes I think as parents, you know, we pursue our relationship with our children and, you know, we can't seem them to, you know, respond like we'd like. Or maybe you're a child and you're trying to have that relationship with your parent, or perhaps it's a friend of some sort, a coworker that you like to have a friendship with. Maybe it's just a, maybe it's more uh, deeper than that, or you're looking for something else, a boyfriend or girlfriend, some sort, maybe a spouse, someone that you really are longing to have a better relationship with, and it just doesn't seem to be returned a lot. Or maybe that person actually betrayed you or abandoned you, what we call throwing you under the bus, or they hung you out to dry, or whatever it may be that you look back and you think about this person that you long to have a relationship with and they did not respond. Maybe because of that, you become a little bit jaded or cynical, a little guarded, maybe even bitter about that. Maybe in some cases, you're not very likely to give your heart away anytime soon to anybody else because you've been hurt. And you might even start to get a little paranoid thinking, maybe everybody's against me. Maybe I'm just not the kind of person that people are ever going to like, you know, and thinking everybody in the world is out to get you. If that is you in any way, shape, or form, I hope today that you'll give us a chance. You'll open your mind a little bit because today we're going to be talking about someone who is wholeheartedly, completely head over heels for you, someone who will never leave you, never forsake you, never betray you, and that is God. God is for you. God is for you. His word is so clear about the love that God has for you. In fact, I want to read from Romans chapter 8, this passage that tells us how much God is for us. Here's what it says, if God is for you, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those who, with whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, whether neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we just say amen to that? What an amazing passage of Scripture. You know, I love this Scripture, and it's like a lot of 
of uh, Bible verses, it has a lot of questions in there. And you start trying to think of answers, but you don't really need to because most of these are what we call rhetorical questions, right? That the answer is pretty obvious. But I, I think the questions will give us an idea of really how much God really is for us and how much he loves us. So I'm going to look at some of those questions, and we're going to see what Paul's trying to say here. The first thing he asks is, is if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, it doesn't really matter who is against you if God is for you. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing because some of us, you know, we might have some people who we feel like are against us. In fact, I'm a people pleaser, you know that probably, but I have a couple of people in life, maybe more, who seem to be against me. And uh, I don't know why, and I'd love to repair that, and I hope you're not one of that. If you are, come and tell me, and we'll work it out, all right? Because I don't like to have anybody against me, but I know there are people that don't really care for me, maybe disagree with where I might stand on some, some issues, but that's okay, because when you stand on God's Word, which is where I want to stand, He is for me, and other people don't really matter. And that hurts us sometimes, and maybe it's a relational thing that we need to work on, but, but at some point we have to say, you know what, if God is for me, it's, it's okay if other people are not, are not for me. But you know, the greater issue, maybe what's being said here is how much God really is for you. And I don't know if you've ever thought how much God really thinks of you. I don't know if you realize how much he loves you. Let me show you by illustrating just his word how he does that. Did you realize that God the Father actually rejected Jesus, his son, to choose you? That God rejected his son to choose you. Now, I have a son, and there ain't no way I'm going to choose you over him. I'm just telling you. But God did that. He actually did it because he loves you that much. If God gave his only son for you, then what would it possibly take for him to abandon you? There's nothing that would make him abandon you. God is so for you that at the cross, he was against his own son. So if the father gave the son to save you, there's nothing he won't do to keep you. That's how much God loves you. We don't think about that or ponder that very often. And there's nothing that was changed his mind about you. He will always be there for you. He will always give you all things. And that's an amazing statement. Do you read that he'll give you all things? I can't even imagine what all things means in God's eyes. But I'm sure it's far beyond what we can imagine. I mean, we think about our current blessings. Most of us are very blessed. We might have some bumps in life, but we have so much now but we know this is not all things. There are all things that are greater than what we experience right now, and I can't even imagine what that would be. The Bible gives us a little hint of some of it. It does say that you will have a perfect resurrected body. You know, as I get a little older, I start to appreciate that more, that perfect body, because uh, mine's never been perfect, and it's getting less perfect as time goes on. But imagine what that would be like. You're going to have a perfect body, a resurrected body. You're going to have your own mansion in heaven that will be greater than what you have now. And you guys, some of you got pretty nice, nice houses now, right? But it's going to be better than anything you've ever had. And you're going to sit on the throne with Jesus. Sit on the throne with Jesus. That's a lot, right? You're going to live in a city where the streets are lined with gold. And that's just a start. There's going to be all things given to you. I don't even know where to go from there. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a part of God's family, you are in line to receive an inheritance, you are in the will. And that's pretty sweet. Have you ever been in anybody's will? Have you ever done that? 
it's pretty nice to know you're going to receive something that you did not deserve, you didn't do anything for, it just was given to you. And you're going to receive that. That's pretty great. And it's not going to be just some things, just some money. You're going to receive all things. Do you realize how much God loves you? Do you realize how much he cares for you? Let me ask you this, just in comparison, because we're human, how much do you love your child if you have children? How much do you love your child? You know, I think about my kids every day. They're scattered all over the world, (laughs) not all over, but around the world, and, and I think about them every day. I love my kids. Let me give you a story in the Old Testament about a man who loved his son but had to make a tough choice. And you probably heard this story many times in the Old Testament about the man Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of God's people. The only problem, he didn't have any kids. And that must have seen a really strange statement when God said, you're going to have as many uh, descendants as the sand on the seashore and the, skies, the stars in the sky. And Abraham goes, that would be great if I had even one child. It would be a good start, but no kids. And he's up nearing 100 years of age. And they waited a long time with the same promise until finally, you know the story, his wife Sarah had an idea. She said, I'm going to get you a girlfriend. And Abraham goes, that sounds like a decent idea. He was some time away from God, right? He was willing to do that. And so Sarah fixed him up with, his, with her maid, who was Hagar. What could possibly go wrong? We look back and we know we we see a lot that could go wrong and everything we could imagine and more did go wrong, right? Because we know the story. Abraham went in, had relations with Hagar, the maid of Sarah. She got pregnant, had a son. And all of a sudden, believe it or not, Sarah was jealous of all that. We know all the danger that or all the problems that came out of it. And we know here's the amazing thing. When we do wrong and we sin, it reap there's ripples forever. And today, the Arabs and the Jews, which are represented, you know, come from the line of these two children, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, are still at each other, right? So it was a horrible mistake. But finally, they did it the right way. Finally, a child was born to Sarah by Abraham, and they called his name Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarah laughed at the whole idea. But at any rate, the little boy grew up. And, uh, and finally, one day, God told Abraham, I want you to take your son, the only son you have, the only leg- legitimate son you had, and I want you to take him, and I want you to put him to death. I can't imagine God telling me to do that to my son, but Abraham heard God clearly, and he was obedient. He took him up. They went up on a mountain. They traveled about 50 miles. And as they got near the time of the sacrifice, the place of sacrifice, Isaac began to notice that he was carrying the wood His father was probably carrying the fire, but they didn't have anything to to sacrifice. There was no animal. And so he asked his father about it, and uh, and Abraham said, well, God would provide. And they got closer, and Isaac realized that God was providing him. And he didn't understand either, and I'm sure that Abraham didn't. But Abraham believed that even if Isaac died, if he had killed him, that God would raise him back to life again. But we know the story, right? We know the story in the nick of time that the angel of the Lord, which, by the way, in most cases in the Old Testament refers to a pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord stopped his arm, his hand, from killing his son and provided a ram, and Isaac was spared. So Abraham loved his son like you and I would love our children But he was willing to obey God because he knew what God was telling him. But let me tell you another story that I think is even more obviously amazing is that many years later on that same mountain, never thought a lot about this, but on the same mountain, there was another son who carried 
the wood of a cross up that mountain, then called Calvary, and there the Son of God was laid on that wood, but there was no substitute. He was not spared. There was no replacement for him, and he died for us. And God allowed that to happen. If God would do that for us, then nothing and no one can come between us and him. Nothing and no one. Now, that doesn't mean that we're anything special. It doesn't mean that we're great. It just means that he is amazing. He's amazing. Let me illustrate this. And and to do that, I got to tell you something that a lot of you are going to be shocked to find out. I have a dog. I mean, I don't mean that Lori and I have a dog. I mean, I have a dog. And I got a picture of him up here on the screen. This is Buck. And Buck is my dog, which is different from most of the dogs that we've had. And if you're just visiting with us, this may not seem like a great thing, but some of you will tell you this is an amazing thing that I have a dog, right? I like this dog. I'm not at the loving phase of this dog, but I like I like Buck. So I had to tell you that up front to illustrate the whole love thing, all right? And that is the difference between a love of a dog and a love of a cat. <laughs> right? So here, here's what a cat, when you do something nice for a cat, a cat goes, I'm amazing. <laughs> My master lives to serve me because I am amazing, Right? But your dog is different. When you do something for your dog, your dog looks at you and goes, you are amazing. Right? That's why your dog is your best friend, not your cat, you know, right? I'm just joking. But I I do want to tell you, you need to have a dog theology and not a cat theology. Because when you see how much God loves you, it's not because you're special. God isn't serving you as your master You are serving him. He's an amazing master. So make sure you have a dog theology, not a cat theology. Basically, if God's for you, then nothing and no one can be against you. Here's the second question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? You and I are God's elect, and no one can bring a charge against us but Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can. People may try. They may accuse you, but they're on dangerous ground when when they do so. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, another character, Moses, when Moses was God's man and he was his elect and he was doing everything and people brought charges against him and God opened the ground up and, and then closed it and swallowed it up over him. Don't you wish God would do that sometime when people come against you, you know, you know you're on God's side? We're living in the era of grace. That, that's not going to happen. But really the only one who can condemn you is the one who died for you. He's the only one that has a right to condemn you. We've all sinned against him, but in his love, he overlooks and forgives our sins if we've been declared justified and redeemed. And, and, you know, his grace was evident one time when a woman was brought to Jesus, caught in adultery. Remember that story? And Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. We don't need to be judged by other people, and we don't need to judge or bring charges against anyone who's been declared righteous by God. No one can condemn us if we are in Christ. Here's another question. Who is to condemn? There are always people who want to condemn you, right? Today in our culture, there's a new phrase that we've, been, we've heard lately called the cancel culture. Someone's canceled. No second chances, no grace. You, you say or you do something and it doesn't go with culture, you're going to be shut down, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be condemned. Social media is about, horrible about that. But let me ask you this. Who can condemn us? That's what the question. Who can condemn us? Well, there's some people that do try, right? And one of them, unfortunately, is, is yourself. 
Sometimes you condemn yourself. Some people, I think, hate themselves because they act like that. You know, we know our sins and, and our failures, and sometimes we can't forgive ourselves. Sometimes we don't hate ourselves, but we can show grace to other people, but with never any grace to ourselves. You know, I've often thought how difficult it must be for some people when they really blow it. When they do something really, really horrible that impacts them and their family, and it impacts them for a lifetime, when it takes away something and it, and it can't be fixed, you know, here on the earth, and they have to kind of live with the, 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 the repercussions of their decisions. And sometimes when that happens, they can't forgive themselves. But let me just say this, that if Jesus can forgive us, and he can, and he does, then we have to forgive ourselves. If we confess that and we're forgiven by God, and if Jesus forgives us and we don't forgive ourselves, it's like saying, wow, Jesus, you did a lot, but not enough. And that's wrong. He did it all. He paid it all. And so we have to learn to forgive ourselves. It's not about you forgiving yourself. It's about accepting the forgiveness that Jesus offers to you. Sometimes we condemn ourselves and we should not, we cannot, but sometimes it's other people who condemn us, you know? Sometimes we have people in our life, our very own archaeologists, you know? What do archaeologists do? They dig up the past. And you got people in your life that are always digging up the past, your past, and always displaying it for other people to see, right? Everything about your life, the mistakes that you made, talk about you and tell other people. Sometimes maybe it's a family member. Sometimes we hate those reunions and those get-togethers because somebody trashes us or, you know, somebody uh, talks about our embarrassing and shameful moments. Sometimes it's to make themselves look better, you know, and to make us look horrible or maybe just put you down. And really, when you think about that, unfortunately, there's so little love in that. And it's all about broken relationships. If you're in a healthy relationship, there's no condemnation, there's grace. And that's how it is with God, right? He sets the example for us. But if there's condemnation in a relationship, then there is no relationship. And maybe you wonder sometimes you, why your relationship is suffering. It's because, maybe it's because you're condemning or critical or judgmental. You may wonder why you're alone in life, why you don't have any friends. It may be because you're a condemner. You don't value relationships. You don't show mercy. You don't show grace. You don't give forgiveness. And because of that, relationships cannot grow or survive. But because of Jesus, what Paul's saying, people can't condemn us, not ourselves, nobody else. Does that mean that we're perfect and that we're not guilty? No, we're all sinners. The Bible's clear about that. But we all deserve condemnation. But we have this advocate named Jesus who isn't condemning or condoning. He doesn't condone our sin. He doesn't condemn our sins. He takes our sin to the Father to be forgiven. And we have the Holy Spirit in our corner as well. Romans chapter 8, same chapter earlier. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what we to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the sin, saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit takes our struggles to Jesus, who is our high priest, and he takes our request to the Father. Guys, we got the A-team on our side, Right? We got the best. We got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We got everybody working for us. So no one can condemn us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The next question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
What's implied here, again, this question is that nothing can separate us, not troubles, not problems or stress or hardship or famine or naked or persecution or religious harassment or mockery or intolerance or threats or shutting down the church or nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, no matter what this world throws at us, we will always have the love of Christ in our lives. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He has a constant, consistent love for us. And in verse 37, it says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, neither the present, the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty comprehensive list, you know, nothing in all creation. That covers everything, basically. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, we may feel like at times that we're losing. We may feel like that we've blown it. We may feel like that we're falling apart. People may abandon us. We may be standing physically all by ourselves, but God's for us. And if God is for us, no one can be against us because Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and all the biggies in life. We don't have to worry about anything else. So we should never, ever worry about death. We should never fear death. You know, most of you know that uh, a week or so ago, my mother-in-law passed away, Carolyn, and many of you know, knew her. Uh, she was uh, uh, loved in, in this church, and I want to thank you all for loving her so much. But she passed easily and went to be with the Lord, and there was no fear. There was no worry. We have no worry about her. We have sadness, but we rejoice that she's with the Lord and her husband and her son. We shouldn't worry about that. In Christ, we are good. We are good. We can rest in his peace. And we have to trust that God has it under control. You know, in this world we live in today, there's a lot for us to be potentially worried about, right? We watch the news and we see horrible things happen. Uh, and we see the fear that we could have naturally about what could happen to us. But we should never fear that. In fact, when we look at, uh, when we think about life, we ought to kind of think about it, not about watching the news, but instead watching the History Channel. Have you ever noticed that when you watch the History Channel, you don't get nervous? Because it's already happened, right? And you know what, you know, you don't worry about who's going to win World War II because you already, it's already been done, right? It's in the past. And we ought to look at life in a similar way. We should not fear and worry all the time. God's got it under control, you know. God knows the outcome. Nothing's going to surprise him. He's not worried about what's going to happen, and neither should we. We have to have calm and peace because there's nothing in all creation that could separate us from his life. There's always going to be challenges and opposition, but these things are nothing compared to God. They may look like they're winning sometimes. The world does, and the world may, may feel, and we may feel overwhelmed but remember that God's still in control. He's still on his throne. He's large. He's in charge. We don't have to be worried. Isaiah 54 says, no weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. We should rest upon that promise that no weapon forged against you will prevail, and we will succeed. We will win in the end. 
And when you're feeling like you may be losing at times, remember these words in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. It says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And Romans 8, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why do we worry and fear when we have these amazing promises in God's word? We're on the winning team. We may experience a few temporary setbacks in times, but remember that God is for you. And if you get nothing else, would you take that home with you and say, God's for me? Would you just do that? But let me turn this around a little bit and say that knowing that God is for you enables us to be for God. Because there is a response on our part. Not that we deserve anything, but there has to be a response on our part. And this is what I want you to take away from this text as well. Everything that we do is for him and for his glory because he is so for us. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Because God is for us, we are for him. Everything we do is to be done for and to the glory of God. And you know, sometimes that means standing up for unpopular truth, but it always means that we do that with grace and love. Grace and love. You know, unfortunately, sometimes the church is known for what we're against more than what we're for. But we really need to be known for what we're all about. And we are for God because God is so for us. And we need to have this constant and contagious hunger for God. For God, the pursuit of God. Matthew chapter 5 said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Having this hunger makes us seek after him to find his will for our life. Knowing how much we are loved, our response has to be to love him back. And you know, today the world has a way of distracting us and make us hunger for other things that do not satisfy I don't know if you know this or not, but everything that you, that you humanly long for is not for you. That, that's not out there for you. It's not because you're so great. Everybody wants to give you all these things. But God is so great, and he gives us all things. The things that we think satisfy, they're not, they don't satisfy. They just don't. You probably figured that out if, you have any, if you've lived very many years. Because we seek these things, and then we want something else because they never satisfy but there is one that we see, God, who always satisfies. We hunger for him and we are fed. So let me tell you, how do we keep that hunger and passion for God in our lives? How do we pursue him? Let me just give you some bullets. First of all, accept this hunger as a gift. Acknowledge that we ought to hunger after God. Most of us try to avoid hunger. That's why we eat three times a day, whether we're hungry or not, right? We want to make sure we don't hunger. But we ought to seek this gift of God as as a gift to us, the hunger of God. And we need to be open and seek God. Secondly, surround yourself or ground yourself in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. That's an amazing little phrase there. We do that by understanding who God is and who God's made us to be. We don't want to live in being afraid of God and terrified of God, but we, this is a, a, health, a, a healthy respect and fear of who God is. When you're grounded in the fear of the Lord, you want God to be glorified in your life. 
In fact, your entire motivation for your life is to please him. You are for God because he is for you. And as you live a life worthy of Jesus Christ, a deep hunger for God overwhelms you and you seek him. And you feed that hunger, uh, secondly, by reading the Bible and to develop this lasting hunger. By reading the Bible every day and soaking in his presence, we develop this lasting hunger for God. Reading the Bible actually will transform your life. What you discover there will change you. It, it does every day in people who are willing to hear God's word. It'll cause you to be more in love with Christ, to be more hungry to know more about him. It'll create a broad and wide foundation for your faith to build the rest of your life on. Your passion for God will grow. Your fear of the Lord will grow. And you're going to learn to develop discernment about how he's leading you and teaching you to live your life. Fourthly, express your devotion through prayer. As you respond to God, as you hear from God through his word, you respond back. Bible reading is the way God speaks to us. Prayer is the way we respond to him. And prayer is a discipline. We talked a few weeks ago about spiritual disciplines. It's a discipline of our faith, but when our hearts are devoted to God, it doesn't feel like a burden. It's not a burden. It's a joy. It's a pleasure, not a chore. And then number five, be open to encounters with God. This idea of fearing God sometimes terrifies people that they don't seek God and they're almost afraid to encounter God. We should never fear encountering him. We just seek God with respect, but be open to hearing from God and seeking his will. We talked uh, about in the dis time of disciplines, uh, we talked about having quiet time just to hear from God, to give God time to break through the clutter and the distractions of, of, of our life so that we can truly encounter him and know that we've heard from God. And we can do that in a lot of settings, in our corporate worship, in our private time with him, in times that we're serving him, or maybe just being with other believers. And then number six, pursue a God-focused life through faith and obedience. Pursuing God. Are you pursuing after God? Because God is for us, we can be for him, and we are blessed both ways. We are blessed when God's for us, and we're blessed more when we respond to God. God is so for you. But here's the question that I want to wrap up with this morning. And that question is, are you for him? There is no doubt that God is for you. But what we have to answer is, are you for him? Are you living for him? Are you serving him? Are you for God? And guys, one day when we stand before him, that answer is going to be obvious, and God already knows that, but we'll have to give an account for our lives and how we've lived them and how we've responded to the amazing love that God has for us. There was one verse of Scripture that we, I didn't include here. It's probably familiar to all of us. It's John three sixteen, as we think about God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life, not perish. And this morning, that's what I want to challenge you about more than anything else. God is for you. He did this for you. But have you responded to him? And if so, how have you done that? Trying to be a good person, that's a great start, but that's not ever going to be enough. Because God, what God wants from you is for you to give your life in a commitment to Jesus Christ, to follow him, to live for him. And if you haven't done that this morning, today is a great day to start that.